This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. In a rare show of bipartisanship on Capitol Hill, dozens of Democratic senators voted with their Republican counterparts to block D.C.'s new criminal code. The D.C. City Council passed the new criminal code with unanimous support late last year, the first time it was changed in more than 100 years. The Senate vote was 81 to 14. Democratic New Jersey Senator Cory Booker spoke to concerns from the City Council prior to that vote. I have a distinction of being the only one of the 100 senators actually born in Washington, D.C. This is the city my parents met in. This is the city they married in. And I am disappointed that there is nobody in this body who was officially elected to speak for this city. After the break, we discuss what the vote means for the district's ability to self-govern, why Congress has a say over D.C. affairs, and why crime in the nation's capital is causing bipartisan reaction. This show is part of 1A's Remaking America project, looking at how our government is and is not working for everyone. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. Before we jump into the conversation, we should note that 33 Senate Democrats voted in favor of the legislation blocking D.C.'s new criminal code. And we asked each of these lawmakers to join us today. Most did not respond. Virginia Senators Tim Kaine and Mark Warner, as well as Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey, declined. Joining us in our Washington, D.C. studio is WAMU reporter and editor Martin Ostermule. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And also with us is D.C. Council Member Charles Allen. He's a Democrat who represents Ward 6. Council Councilmember Allen, we appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Good to see you. Uh, Senators who voted to strike down the D.C. Council's crime bill argued it was soft on crime. Here's Republican Wyoming Senator John Barrasso. Senate Republicans are going to vote to stop Washington, D.C.'s radical new legislation. It's legislation that lets criminals get out of jail free. 
So, Martin, what was included in the criminal code rewrite? I mean, it's a huge package, so I'm going I'm to summarize here. But basically, it was rewriting the entirety of the district's criminal laws. It was taking out outdated offenses, stuff like references to steamboats, things that don't make any sense anymore. It was rewriting specific new criminal penal, uh, criminal offenses, kind of defining what it takes to commit a crime and what you know what you can prosecute for, and then redoing how sentences are written. They basically rewrote sentences to take account into the severity of the offense. You want to make sure that certain degrees, like the worse an offense gets, the the worse the punishment gets. And then there was other policy-oriented changes, like they wanted to reinstate the right to a jury trial for people who are charged with misdemeanors. That was done away with in the 1990s. It was getting rid of mandatory minimum sentences for everything but first-degree murder, and it would give folks who are serving prison sentences after a certain amount of time the chance to go to a judge and ask for early release. Were certain penalties increased? Yes, there was both. I mean, there were some that were that were decreased, and again, there's an explanation for that, or there was a debate around that. But yes, there were cases where there were penalties that were increased, and there were also crimes that weren't currently on the books that were added, that were going to be added on the books. Now, the D.C. Council unanimously approved the crime code rewrite, though D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser said, quote, this bill does not make us safer. She spoke with the Politics Hour on WAMU on March 3rd about why she vetoed the legislation. My role in the legislative process is to communicate what I think the city needs, listening to the police chief, listening to the prosecutors, listening to the judges, listening to advocates on both sides of the issue, um, and making sure I communicate that clearly to the council. Unfortunately, they rejected um, my my view out of hand, Uh, and so I issued a veto. Now, I've been mayor eight years. I've only issued seven vetoes in my time as mayor, um, and I don't do it lightly. Now, Councilmember Allen, the council overrode the mayor's veto, but why was this criminal code rewrite important for you? Well, as you heard, we have a 120-year-old criminal code that does not keep us safe today. Uh, It lacks clarity. It lacks proportionality. uh, It has a bunch of outdated language, but it also is not keeping us safe today. I'll use one example. Uh, About 40% of the arrests that MPD makes for our gun laws, for gun violations, don't even move forward to a prosecution. The federal U.S. attorney just drops those cases. Um, Our code does not keep us safe today. But there's a bigger issue, of course, of why we saw what took place, and that's that 700,000 federal taxpaying American citizens do not have representation in Congress. I think Senator Booker uh, got it pretty right there. Um, We have more people live in D.C. than in the state of Wyoming, more people live in D.C. than the state of Vermont. It's about the same population as Alaska or North Dakota. And there would never be a scenario where we would think it's okay for Congress to come in and, and just disregard an entire state's population and and just overturned their local laws. Makes no sense. And that's why people are so outraged about this, uh, regardless of actually if they agree or disagree with the law. Was there a way to find some equal footing with Mayor Bowser to to come to some agreement that both the council and the mayor felt comfortable with? Oh, absolutely. We, We made a lot of amendments specifically based on feedback from the U.S. Attorney's Office. We worked very closely. The U.S. Attorney, our federal prosecutor, uh, recommended that we move forward with this law. We also worked to make a lot of compromises with the mayor. Um, And she wanted more changes. She said, I think, that she agrees with 96, 97% of the law. And I guess on the other 3%, you know, this law wasn't going to take effect for at least another three years anyway. There's lots of time to work on that. Uh, so any claim that, that anything was rejected outright uh, is, is just incorrect. There were a lot of changes that were made at the request of the mayor. Um, but we, we certainly have 
more work that could be done over the years before this ever took effect. I want to read a couple of emails we've gotten from listeners in D.C. Bill in Ward 1 says, regardless of the merits of the updates to D.C.'s crime statutes, the council was clearly tone deaf at best to advance this particular crime law at this moment. The council and others can rail against the Republican-led effort to obstruct the law all they want, but the reality is that this is the political environment we live in. The council embarrassed all D.C. residents and Democrats generally and provided Republicans with one more reason to oppose D.C. statehood. Only Mayor Bowser escapes unscathed from this debacle. And Jakarl in D.C. writes, I've lived in D.C. for nearly 18 years and even spent nearly a decade working in the city's government. So I'm highly sympathetic to the idea of D.C. being freed from its legislative bond to the federal government. That said, the city council demonstrated a total lack of real politic. The over-reliance on the D.C. statehood moral claims made for a weak argument against a quote-unquote tough-on-crime national tide for the past two years. Councilmember Allen, how do you respond to those D.C. residents? Well, this was a very long and lengthy deliberate process. Again, it was crafted over a period of about 16 years. The Criminal Code Reform Commission, they're the ones who wrote the bill. They sent it to the council. We spent two years' worth of public meetings, public hearings, and we made a lot of changes. Uh, For example, the Criminal Code recommendation was to eliminate carjacking as a standalone offense disagreed with that. We put that back in. We increased uh, criminal penalties, including for a lot of gun crimes within what we moved forward. Um, by the end of the day, what I think congressional Republicans were looking for, D.C. just makes an easy mark. We don't have a senator. We don't have a full member of Congress. So the, the ability to create a nationalization uh, of this issue, uh, of the politics of public safety, is very easy. And, and the district is an easy mark. The thing is, for those Democrats, it doesn't matter whether they voted this or, on this or not. You were going to see national Republicans call them soft on crime, even when, as you've heard, the criminal code reform actually increased criminal penalties, created new criminal accountability in this. But it's just too easy to call it soft on crime. And a lot of folks buckled at that. A recent poll from the Washington Post found that three in four D.C. residents feel they are very or somewhat safe from crime in their neighborhoods. And according to data released from the Metropolitan Police Department, there's been a 30 percent increase in homicides in the first three months of this year compared to this time last year, more than double the number of motor vehicle thefts over that same time frame. Martin, how top of mind is the issue of crime for D.C. residents compared to lawmakers? I think it's very top of mind. I mean, we saw there was an election cycle last year. There was polling done. People said the crime is something they're concerned about. The mayor kind of made that part of her campaign. Um, This polling shows, again, that crime is something people are thinking about. But it also – I think the polling showed some fascinating nuance in all of it. There was a post-poll last year that asked, what should we do about crime? The answer – one of the answers was get more cops. And not many people – people said, yeah, that that could help, but that's not the only thing. And then this most more recent Washington Post poll, you have people saying, I'm concerned about carjacking. I'm concerned about homicides, two crimes that have gone up in the district. But they also say at the same time, I generally feel safe. So there's a lot of things that are happening and legislating with that is incredibly difficult. And just responding to what uh, the council member just said, one thing that is interesting and that I've been hearing from a lot of people is that one of the messages here was you can only do criminal justice reform when crime is low. And that's that's an incredibly how do you how do you how do you predict that and how do you time it? Do you literally do legislators across this country only ever say, okay, we know these things aren't working, but we're only ever going to change them when crime is low? So let's hope that you know two years from now crime is low and we can move. I mean, there's no one that could predict that. Councilmember Allen, what are you hearing from your constituents on this issue? Well, a lot of folks are are really upset with what Congress did. But public safety, uh, to Martin's point, it is top of mind. It's top of my mind. It's top of, I think, a lot of residents' minds. It is something that we are focused on and understand that the solutions um, are are not 
just uniform, that we know that the solutions are going to be multifaceted. I talk about it a lot as you got to take a both and approach. We know that, for example, policing is a crucial part of public safety. And we also know we've got to invest in the people in the communities, the neighborhoods that are at risk and experiencing that violence. So uh, two things can be true at the same time. And we have to be able to push very aggressively this. But I think this is a, a top of mind issue. But it also looks at why we needed to revise our criminal code in the first place. Because all the crime that took place yesterday, all the crime that took place today, and all the crime that will take place tomorrow is under our current criminal code that also has incredibly lengthy, long, extreme sentences. And we know that if extreme sentences were what would translate into safety, we'd be the safest place in the country. If we want to be serious about tackling public safety, we've got to take that both and and. We have to work closely with and make sure we've got good quality community policing taking place. We also have to invest in our communities. Let's take a look at rec centers. That th everybody likes to talk about rec centers, right? In D.C., they're closed on the weekends when kids need them the most. So that makes no sense. We need to be able to view keeping our rec centers open as a part of a public safety solution. Look at the kids that have been lost throughout the, the pandemic and the disconnect from uh, programming, from services, from supports, kids that were already at risk beforehand. Well, public education, our public schools, that is part of public safety. We've got to be able to focus on this and recognize public safety is many things to many people all at the same time. And it's going to take every pressure point and every lever we can pull at the same time. We're also hearing from you, Richard, in Maryland emails, taxation without representation is tyranny. P true in pre-Republic times, true now. And Elaine emails, both parties shamefully used D.C. to make a statement about their stance on crime for 24 elections. Martin, how has Congress shaped D.C.'s local policies in recent years? I mean, in a lot of ways. The one thing that happened here where Congress actually stepping in to say, okay, D.C. passed a bill, we're going to block it. That doesn't happen often. It's only happened three years in the last – three times in the last 30 years. So this is a pretty significant historical moment for the district. More often than not, what Congress does, it uses the federal budget to say to D.C., you can or you cannot spend money on X, Y, and Z programs. So, for example, one thing they've been doing for the last seven years, they've told the district you cannot move to legalize the sale of recreational marijuana. Even though local officials want to, they say, listen, this is something we want to do. We want to tax it, regulate, and make money off of it. But so what you have as a result is you have this unregulated gray market where people can give gifts of marijuana, and there's stores that do this. They look like traditional dispensaries in places that have legalized marijuana. The district also, Congress has told the district it can't spend money subsidizing abortions uh, for low-income women. This is another kind of, and that's something local officials want to do. In the past, it prohibited the city from spending money on needle exchange programs, um, there was even a case where they stopped the city from installing meters and taxi cabs. We used to have a zone system that members of Congress loved because it meant they could get cheap cabs from Capitol Hill to wherever they lived. The city had long wanted to install uh, meters to make it fair, more fair for more people, and Congress said no. I mean, the, the, the degree of interference is significant and comes in a variety of uh, forms. Councilmember Allen, how much do you think about congressional reach when you're crafting bills? Well, Listen to those examples. Um, you can see where Congress reaches into the district is all about their own self-service, right? So whether it's a taxi cab or whether it's trying to, to block uh, the district's ability to tax and regulate the sale of marijuana, which the members that have added that in, their own states have this in place. Um, they don't care about public safety in the district. They don't care about district residents. They don't care about districts' communities. They are looking to be able to cut that 30-second ad. They're looking to be able to find a wedge issue to try to bring on a culture issue and, and to fight. So the district has to be aware of that. Uh, but at the same time, 
I, unless you want me to, to pull up an office for Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greene or Comer or Kevin McCarthy into the Wilson building, uh, it makes no sense. And their overreaches show the lie. They don't even try to hide it. It is about nationalizing local issues that they think help them be able to, to fight off or combat politically back in their home districts. According to Axios, two Republican congressmen introduced a resolution to roll back police reforms that the D.C. Council approved in 2020. Those are temporary. They're under congressional review. But given last week's vote, what concerns do you have about Congress continuing to intervene in D.C. local affairs? Well, I'm very concerned, and this is something I I talked about uh, last week, that unless the district shows a united, unbreakable front between the mayor, the council, our attorney general, and our congresswoman, we can't let any daylight take place. Because last week it was the criminal code. This week it's going to be about how do we help hold accountability for policing. Next it's going to be about trans kids in our schools, or it's going to be about our immigrant neighbors, or it's going to be about our LGBTQ community. This is going to be an ongoing effort that they are going to make to try to nationalize and weaponize the politics within the district. And they're going to keep coming and coming for different issues. So the district leaders need to understand that we had a democratic process. We went through that democratic process. We abide by that democratic process. And we have to stand together as a united front. Um, what they're next looking at is an issue around policing reform many of whom they've already put their names on almost the exact same legislation in Congress. But this is something that's been in effect to help hold bad, the bad apples accountable to make sure that you have good, quality, accountable policing, very common sense approaches that's been in place now for two years uh, that really works with a lot of the best thinking that we've seen. So they're going to come at it, though, and try to frame it in a very different way. But that's, again, the district's an easy mark, and the district's got to stand united against this type of interference. I want to go to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Austin in D.C. I don't need to agree with every aspect of a law to want my elected leaders to be the ones who have the final say. I went to the protest on Wednesday, and when I heard a speaker say that all of the people who were voting in the Senate were not voted by any of us who are voters in D.C., that really struck me as why we in D.C. need full representation, and the best way to do that is through D.C. statehood. Thanks for that message, Austin. Councilmember Allen, on the topic of D.C. statehood, how likely is that to happen? Uh, it's not looking good right now. Now, I have to fight and believe that it is, it is our goal, it is what we will achieve, but I think we'd be we wouldn't be serious if we were to say that it's on the verge of, of happening. So we know that we have to stand up for our own rights. Um, and we also have to appeal to those from others. Um, you know, for the folks that, uh, that we just watched their member of, members of Congress uh, do this, I'm not sure that's what their constituents sent them to do. They've got big issues. Our country is facing big problems and big issues. They need to spend their time and attention focused on that not trying to focus on issues of folks that didn't even elect them there in the first place. Martin, what are you watching for as this continues to play out? Just to see if Congress does it again. I mean, again, it took 30 years to get to this one place where they blocked the D.C. bill. Will they do it again, you know, second time in just a year, potentially? That's WAMU political reporter Martin Ostermule, also with us, D.C. City Council member Charles Allen. Council member Martin, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having me. Up next, we look at how crime is playing out in American politics and sentencing reforms across the country. We'll be back after this short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. 
Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Now let's turn back to our discussion about crime and politics in the nation's capital. Both the House and Senate voted to block the district's new criminal code with bipartisan support. President Joe Biden says he plans to sign the bill. The criminal code overhaul included major changes to sentencing, including reducing maximum sentences for carjacking and eliminating mandatory minimum sentences. Many of you shared your thoughts with us. Jay emails us from Oklahoma. How do members of Congress justify their power over the residents of D.C. who are not their constituents? I understand that Congress can force laws on D.C., but why do they think they should? And Ann emails, while not unexpected, from congressional Republicans, I'm so frustrated that Democrats were unbelievably craven in caving to Republican talking points rather than respecting D.C.'s autonomy and a 16-year thoughtful process to update our criminal code. So what are the politics surrounding criminal sentencing, and how are they changing? Ronald Weich is the dean at the University of Baltimore's School of Law. He was the general counsel for the United States Sentencing Commission and the Senate Judiciary Committee in the 1990s and 2000s. Ronald, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And also with us is Amy Fedig, the executive director of The Sentencing Project. That's a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. It advocates for criminal justice reform, and they worked with D.C. City Council to draft their criminal code rewrite. Amy, we appreciate your time. It's great to be here. Thanks. A 2021 Pew Research poll found that 37% of Americans believe people convicted of crimes spend the proper amount of time in prison. The responses were sharply divided, though, along political lines. 54% of liberals think people spend too much time behind bars. Only 10% of conservatives agreed. Ronald, why are criminal sentences such a politically divisive issue? The politics of crime are both combustible and contagious. They're combustible in the sense that it's a very emotional subject, as you hear from those callers you just played. Um, people are, fear for their safety. People are concerned about their, their relatives. Um, so it's natural that it's an emotional subject and uh, is easily exploited by politicians who can play on those emotions and uh, really demagogue the issue. It's contagious in the sense that when one politician uh, takes a stance saying that something is soft on crime, others are afraid of being on the wrong side of that debate. And we've seen that through the decades, really. And we see it today with this D.C. Uh, situation where um, one politician followed another uh, towards saying uh, we're not going to change the uh, D.C. code in this way. 31 House Democrats, including Minnesota Representative Angie Craig, voted in favor of the measure to block D.C.'s criminal code. Craig was attacked by a man in her apartment building just before the House vote, and she declined to join us today but spoke with CBS News last week. I also support D.C. statehood, but as it turns out, I had to make a call, a decision. But if you um, support statehood, how do you square yeah. the two? Well, I square the two because until D.C. has statehood, uh, it falls to the Congress to have that constitutional authority. And I, from a public policy perspective, 
could not and cannot square decreasing penalties for carjackings. Um, even before my own assault, we'd spent time that week, earlier in the week, looking at this bill, and every single American deserves to feel safe in their own community. And I just want to note here that 33 Senate Democrats also supported uh, the GOP-led measure. President Biden says he plans to sign the bill. We asked each of the 33 Senate Democrats to join us today. Most didn't respond, but Virginia Senators Tim Kaine and Mark Warner and Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey both declined. Why are Democratic lawmakers opposing this reform by the city, Ronald? Uh, They say that it lowers penalties, but it doesn't. Uh, What uh, this criminal code exercise uh, was really a technical exercise. It took place over many years. It involved expert uh, testimony. It was a very transparent process where there were hearings and reports that everybody could see. And it was really an effort to rationalize the D.C. code, as Councilmember Allen explained on the prior segment. And so um, every criminal code has gradations. Crimes are of different severity. Uh, Assault in the first degree is more serious than assault in the second degree. It might involve a weapon. It might involve more serious injury. And uh, every criminal code has maximum penalties for different offenses. Just because you change a maximum penalty in an effort to rationalize the various offenses doesn't mean you're lowering the actual punishment that defendants will receive. In fact, the defendants in D.C. are receiving sentences that are much lower than the maximum sentence now. The maximum is sort of the hypothetical uh, worst crime ever. And uh, most sentences are uh, more moderate than that. Well, states across the country began updating their criminal codes in the 1960s using the model penal code as their basis. Amy, what is the model penal code? The model penal code is uh, the product of uh, experts from around the country, from the American Law Institute, coming together and determining what would be the best possible criminal law in the United States. Uh, This was a product of a lot of thinking, a lot of debate, and final consensus. And that's why so many states across the country have adopted, if not the entire model penal code, parts of it. And that's why the District of Columbia used the model penal code as a basis for its criminal code update. And what kind of considerations went into developing that code? We heard an earlier caller say she thinks the victim's experience needs to be included in how someone is sentenced. Give us a better understanding of the thinking that went into it. Well, in the case of the model penal code and the DC code, in particular, the voices of victims' rights advocates were part of the process. In fact, in the District of Columbia, victims' rights advocates support the criminal code update. And they do that because it allows for victims to have a much more direct impact on criminal sentencing. Well, Ronald, you mentioned maximum sentences, but one of the key changes in D.C.'s criminal code overhaul would have been the removal of mandatory minimum sentences. How do mandatory minimum sentences work? Well, mandatory minimums are quite different than maximums. A mandatory minimum sentence is the legislature saying that if you're convicted of a particular crime, the judge may not sentence below a certain amount. And mandatory minimums have been shown to be very counterproductive and result in terrible injustices. We've seen that at the federal level, and in fact, Congress in recent years, on a bipartisan basis, has softened mandatory minimums, for example, for crack cocaine offenses. Um, Really, mandatory minimums have no place in any criminal code, and the D.C. Council did the right thing in largely, but not completely, eliminating them here. Um, 
mandatory minimums, among other things, have a terrible racial disparity because prosecutors get to decide who will be charged with the crimes that carry the mandatory penalty, and they tend to charge people who don't look like them. And so, as we see uh, across the country, mandatory minimums have led to the kind of mass incarceration and racial disparities that really plague our system and undermine its legitimacy. Amy, how are you seeing attitudes towards sentencing change over time? Increasingly, and let's remember that 2023 actually marks the 50th year of mass incarceration in this country. We have put more and more people behind bars for longer and longer periods of time, and it hasn't made us safer. Uh, Because of that, we are seeing across the country, despite what you might have seen Congress do uh, last week, The people of the United States recognize that prisons aren't making us safer, and certainly longer sentences aren't making us safer. So we are actually seeing across the country efforts to roll back extreme sentencing and to rationalize our approach to criminal justice. Uh, One of the key things that we are also seeing is that people are demanding that we prevent crime. Instead of investing in prisons, we should be investing in things that we know make all of our communities safer. like affordable housing and good education and access to livable wage jobs. I mean, we all know what safe communities look like. And I think increasingly Americans are asking, why aren't we creating safe communities instead of investing in prisons? Uh, Ronald, how have you seen congressional attitudes shift since you worked with Congress? Well, in the 1980s and 90s, um, uh, crime was uh, top of mind as uh, your prior guest said, and uh, it did not result in healthy legislation. Almost every two years, there was a massive new crime bill, an Anti-Drug Abuse Act, an Omnibus Crime Control Act, and the famous 1994 crime bill that President Biden, then Senator Biden, really championed. And it um, vastly increased sentences, provided much more money for police and prisons, and led very much to the uh, mass incarceration that we see today that Amy just spoke about. It's quite right that in recent years, there's been a rethinking of that. There's a pendulum. People who work in criminal justice think of it as a pendulum that swings back and forth. And uh, the pendulum has swung towards somewhat more rational policies and uh, a recognition that some of the sentencing uh, provisions are too harsh and unjust. Um, Now, uh, this D.C. action, uh, the act of the Congress in blocking the D.C. reform bill, uh, may signal uh, a swing of the pendulum back in the other direction. And that's very disturbing. We're talking to Ronald White. She's the dean at the University of Baltimore's School of Law. Also with us is Amy Fettig. She's the executive director of the Sentencing Project. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. We got this email from Rick who says, D.C.'s police chief recently said that the average homicide culprit has been arrested 11 times before committing murder. Why aren't we locking up people found in possession of illegal guns? Now, Amy, I don't know that every one of those uh, reported 11 arrests were gun-related or for violent crimes, but what can you tell us about the mayor's position here? Well, the mayor's position is not informed by what criminological research over decades has told us. And that establishes very clearly that extreme sentences, the length of a sentence, 
doesn't deter crime at all. And think about it, that why would an individual who is about to commit a crime, and that's usually under the influence of drugs or alcohol, it's very situationally determined, why would they think, oh my goodness, I, there's a 24-year mandatory, maybe I won't commit this crime. People don't commit crimes thinking about the criminal code. They mostly don't know about the criminal code. The vast majority of people in this country don't know what, for example, a carjacking statute even is. Uh, So relying on extreme sentences to prevent crime, we know that that doesn't work. What does work is swift and certain punishment. We know know that if if people know they're going to be caught, they won't do it. Uh, So Increasing sentences actually doesn't make us safer. Again, what makes us safer, and everybody deserves to live in a safe community, that's investing in things that prevent crime on the front end. If you've got somebody who's been arrested 11 times, that should tell you that you are not dealing with the crisis in their lives. You're not doing anything to prevent them or help them to make a change. That's an indictment of our criminal legal system not doing its job for us. Ronald, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, because we hear Rick in this email make a connection between illegal guns and someone eventually committing murder. Sure. I mean, look, uh, gun crime should be taken seriously. People do need to be held accountable. I agree with everything that Amy has said about the need to deal with root causes such as uh, housing and and drug abuse. Um, But still, people need to be held accountable. I was a prosecutor um, in in New York and in the Justice Department, and I very much believe in accountability. Um, But that doesn't mean that everybody gets uh, put away for life. Uh, That would be entirely unjust and counterproductive. We need to have measured sentences. Uh, We need to have rational uh, criminal codes. And that's what the D.C. Council tried to do here. Um, I do worry that uh, this, as I said, uh, creates a contagious atmosphere in which um, other D.C. laws will be blocked, perhaps related to police accountability. And around the country, we see uh, these uh, uh, efforts to um, silence uh, uh, progressive voices. So the uh, district attorney in San Francisco was recalled. There was a mayoral election in Chicago where the uh, the, the mayor was uh, uh, not reelected and the leading candidate seems to be more uh, focused on, on um, harsh crime policies. Um, in Baltimore, where I am, uh, the progressive prosecutor Marilyn Mosby lost her re-election bid, although there were other factors there. Um, so it, 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 I really do feel the pendulum is starting to swing back, and I hope that we can find the sweet spot where we are holding uh, criminals accountable for their bad choices, and yet uh, uh, not uh, in sort of an irrational way uh, filling the prisons again um, with uh, people who don't deserve to be there and certainly don't need to be there for the length of time that some sentences uh, call for. Amy, what does the future for criminal sentencing reform look like in D.C. after Congress blocked the current code? Well, we know that 83 percent of D.C. residents support the criminal code as it was put forward to Congress. So I'm hopeful, and I'm also a resident of D.C., I know that D.C. recognizes that we need a criminal code for the 21st century. We need to stop using the same old policies of mass incarceration and move forward so that we can have truly safe communities. You know, Congress may have stopped us in this moment, but I am quite sure that the people of D.C. are going to move forward so that we can build a safe community that promotes racial justice 
and protects everybody. That's Amy Fedig, the executive director of the Sentencing Project. Also with us, Ronald Weich, the dean at the University of Baltimore's School of Law. He was the general counsel for the United States Sentencing Commission and the Senate Judiciary Committee in the 1990s and 2000s. Amy, Ronald, thank you. This show was part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations around the country. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producers were June Leffler and Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, hosts Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's chief fixed income strategist, along with their guests, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around stocks, fixed income, the economy, and more. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.